Welcome to the DLTO pod. I am your host, Dave Levitt. On this week's episode, I get on my soapbox about money issues, and then I have a great conversation with MBA holder and all-around great person and great conversationalist Jen Bates on what entrepreneurship and the gig economy could look like going forward. Jen then sticks around to talk about our all-time favorite sitcom characters in the list. And as usual, there is a dad joke of the week and another addition to your quarantine stream. So sit back, relax, and after a little music, on with the show. And now, this week's Soapbox. Money, 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 money! Money! Nope, I am not trying to conjure up the image of Donald Trump. I think we've all had enough of that over the last three years, don't you think? No, I am poorly singing that song from the OJs to talk about something far more important. Your money. Or more specifically, how we are all getting money at this time. Now, full disclosure, I have been receiving my full salary while working from home. I am very privileged to be in this situation. And I'm also aware that many of us are not so privileged. And I use that word rather than lucky because it's not luck. I am still working, so I should be paid. If you're still working, you should be paid. However, there are a growing number of Canadians who are not working or who won't have a job to return to when the stay-at-home orders are lifted and the economy grinds back to life. And that's a big issue for our society to deal with. Look, a certain amount of unemployment is expected, and if you speak to most economists, it's also necessary. While it is tough on those families who, in normal times, are without the stability of a regular paycheck provides, we as a society have built a fairly decent social safety net. Here in Canada, we have a single-payer, tax-funded healthcare program that takes away the fear of illness and the associated costs of treatment. We have an imperfect employment insurance system that nonetheless provides some funds for those without a job. But when you dump millions of people into that pool, as we have over the last six weeks, it overflows with needs that we are not equipped or prepared to deal with. The rise in the application for the various programs the federal government has put out is mirrored by the rise in demand on food banks, shelter programs, and calls to various mental health support providers. While we may have some relief from the toll the virus takes on hospitals and primary care services, the long tail of this pandemic will likely be felt in the rise of unstable employment situations and the stresses I just laid out on what I'm going to call the para-living supports. And while we have seen an outpouring of support from Canadians to help stem this rising tide of need, there are still some who haven't signed on to this altogether ethos. Now, I'd like to put a personal face on this. My wife is a sole operator um, of her own business. And she, like many small businesses, are feeling the pinch. So, in late April, in response to this growing cry from thousands of small business owners, the federal government announced a relief program that would effectively act as a buoy in these turbulent seas. The gist of the program went that if a small business could prove a high percentage of income loss year over year, they could apply to have their rent shared in the following way. The government would put up 50% of the monthly rent, the small business owner would pay 25% of their rent, and the landlord gives up the remaining 25% in order for this to all work. The catch is the landlord has to agree to this arrangement, and many are not. So while the majority of small businesses have had little to no income during this time and will likely face smaller revenues for months as we ease up on social distancing rules, if their landlord doesn't agree to the program, then they are on the hook for the entire 100% of the rent. Put another way, the landlord gets to keep 100% of their revenue while others are getting close to none. And I ask you, how is that fair? Now, I know that not all commercial landlords are super wealthy corporations, and I don't assume that they are all bad actors. 
But how is it okay for small businesses to lose their entire revenue for an undetermined amount of time through no fault of their own, while landlords get to receive all of their revenue? We know this isn't fair, and it's not just. And if those small businesses go under as a result of this, that is more people who will be added to the ever-bloated social assistance programs I've listed before. Now, it's been bloated that small businesses could or should defer rent or portions of the rent until later in the year. But again, how does a small business make up for additional revenue in later months? It is not as though they're going to grow year over year in the same amount they lost during the shutdown. So, in a bid to minimize the economic carnage and keep more jobs in the long term, it is incumbent upon the federal government to make this program mandatory for all landlords to participate in. Look, if a small business applies to the program and is approved, that's it. That's that's a done deal. Now, this may mean a drop in revenue for those landlords, but it will also mean that more of us will get to keep the money coming in. And isn't that just as important? Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. Mugs! Having trouble determining day from night? Are you living in a quasi-dream state where days are blurred together in a never-ending parade of snacks, video conferences, and Netflix binges? A cup of coffee would be good right now, wouldn't it? Well, mugs have you covered. We are like the original Uber Eats of hot liquid delivery. Mugs! Available in your kitchen or in that birthday gift from your nephew that you never opened. Jen Bates! Hello! Hi, Dave Levitt. How are you, Jennifer Bates? I am doing well and enjoying a little bit of sunshine. Yeah, it's finally kind of cracking a little bit of sun here in the in the big city. Just just barely, just enough to get a little vitamin D. That's all I have. <laughs> all right. Well, like Jen, I do want to welcome you to the show, but I'll do the intro. In fact, maybe we'll flip it this time. You get to introduce yourself. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, um, I should have expected to be able to introduce myself, but here here here's a shot. Uh, my name's Jen Bates. Um, I live in Toronto. Um, I um, so my my background is that I am a, a lawyer and an MBA, and I work in digital health. And uh, uh, I'm excited to be joining your show today. That's awesome. That's perfect. That's kind of what I had down, which is great. Jen, I really wanted to talk to you because, uh, well, number one, I think you're you're one of those people who thinks. Uh, wide and vastly about a lot of different topics. So you can kind of jump in on a lot of different things. But today, I really wanted to focus on a little bit about the future and do a little prognosticating. Is that cool with you? Oh, that sounds great. Also, like, flattery will get you everywhere, my friend. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that's the way it goes. Come on to the guest. I, I butter up guests after they're already <laughs> agreed to be on the show. Okay, just- yeah, that's the way this show works. Um, so, Jen, I want to talk to you a little bit about because um, I'm really interesting about the economy. Obviously, the the macro economy is such an interesting, a big topic. To, but I want to for focusing a little bit about entrepreneurship, you know, because I think that um, it can kind of go one of two ways in the in this post pandemic you know world because we're starting to sort of see a little bit of creaking back up. And I wanted to know a little bit about your thoughts about what what you think entrepreneurship might look like as we go forward. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think I think like it's it's I would sort of separate it into um, different elements because to me, entrepreneurship um, 
has ex- has existed for all time, will exist in the future. Um, you know, we are always as as humankind, as human beings, always innovating and developing new ideas and launching them into market. And, uh, and, you know, the way I think about it is sort of, you know, what, where are we seeing the evolution in technology and trends moving? And I think that it's an interesting time right now to be thinking about how this will affect that in the future. Um, and then there's the element of how do we support our entrepreneurs? So there's, there's the entrepreneurship in and of itself. And then there's the ecosystem that is built up to help accelerate um, an idea and an innovation in a business and and make it become a unicorn or a blockbuster. So kind of like to think about it in those, those two. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing that, that was interesting to me, and you'll tell me, I think, I think my idea in hearing that that was really well laid out the two sort of pieces, I guess where I'm curious is to what that support looks like in terms of finances and i.e. we're shoveling a lot of money out the door right now, right? Governments are, are basically, you know, printing money left and right, which of course devalues the money itself. If it's, you know, so much of it is out there, then it's slightly, then, you know, the, the value of the dollar is less. I'm wondering if we're going to continue, if you think we're going to continue seeing that kind of like low, lack of word, the financing of money, you know, like the, 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 the lending rates are going to be really low. And do you think that will accelerate and help entrepreneurs get back out there? Because we're going to see, inevitably, we're going to see the loss of small businesses and the loss of businesses that were kind of on the upward trend, but weren't necessarily fully sustainable. And then now, now they've lost all their, their revenue or a bunch of their revenue. And I wonder if we're going to see a contraction there and then a push or in, um, by banks and by government to fund money back out to entrepreneurs to get their ideas back out there? Or do you think it's just going to be sort of a, uh-oh, we have to course correct now, so we're going to play tight with the money? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good question. Um, and to be honest, I, I'm not sure that I know the answer or that anyone oh. really knows the answer. Um, and uh, I know. No, I, oh, no. I, I, yeah, exactly. But uh, that's the thing is, I, you know, where do you think? Where do, like, what's your feeling? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I kind of see it happening a little bit like, I mean, we're in a recession. We're in a recession that's um, different than the ones we've experienced in the past. And I'm sure they're all, they're all unique in their own way. Um, if we're, there, there's going, there's currently obviously a lot of, a lot of businesses, a lot of longstanding businesses that, um, have struggled, are struggling to survive, and uh, there will likely be a lot of businesses that that won't be able to survive this. I think that's something that um, we're all pretty painfully aware of. Um, and you know whether they're able to get bridge or loan financing um, to be able to weather this, like I, I'm not sure that's the case because um, at least from a, you know a lending perspective. Um, if you are lending out money, you you tend to want to know that you're going to be able to um, get it back or otherwise have some some collateral. So I think that's going to be really difficult for some businesses to survive on the um, 
the 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 stimulus payments that that have been provided by the government you know and you know they've been they've been helpful in some ways but um you know they're not gonna they're not gonna fix the problem um you know what this looks like over time i think you know you're you're gonna have this sort of ebbing and flowing because where some businesses will likely unfortunately um smaller businesses may not be able to survive this point in time um there there will be other businesses um hopefully perhaps started by the same people who who ran the successful businesses previously who are going to um restart things and and launch things um when the economy and the situation starts to look a little bit more stable right like it starts it's that sort of uh it's that ebb and flow that we normally experience once things um stabilize a little bit then then people will go out and they'll try and figure out how to start a business and make money and um you know potentially um try to capitalize on um as you mentioned you know cheaper cheaper money um you know if there's any sort of uh, in in the real estate if they're if they're in you know hypothetical situation that we have an oversupply at some point, you know, getting cheaper rates on rent if they're a small business that has a brick and mortar presence, um, you know, that it's hard to say exactly how it'll pan out, but it, it, it tends to be more of a fluctuation. So, yeah, no, um, and I, I guess that you hit on a really interesting thing there about the idea of whether they're going to have oversupply, uh, particularly of like retail space or, you know, physical uh, brick and mortar space. And I wonder if we are going to, I mean, we've already kind of seen that malls have started to, you know, were once in super capacity and, you know, almost bursting with stores. We now have seen the opposite, right? Where a lot of malls have, have taken out retail space and put in more restaurant space to try and encourage people to come closer. Because I, again, that's one of the only few things that you need to have brick and mortar. I mean, you, you, there is the online food delivery, but there's still the experience of going to a restaurant and something I think we all enjoy. But I wonder if the new entrepreneurs and the new businesses are going to be less, because I mean, that's where a lot of debt, I'm, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I understand that that's where a lot of retail debt comes from is having to, you know, inventory and space. And I wonder if we're going to move, if this is going to accelerate the move online for many, many businesses and services. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I think, I think what this, um, this crisis has thrown into relief is if it hasn't already is, is just how much uh, our virtual experiences and our digital experiences are going to further accelerate. Um, And, and I tend to think that in, in times like this, where you have this sort of collective um, collective experience, you know, in this case, a fairly traumatic experience, but just an impactful experience um, it changes the way we live in a lot of peculiar ways. Um, and we, you know, I, I think you pointed out very uh, astutely that when it comes to brick and mortar uh, stores, whether that's a restaurant or a retail space, a lot of that value that they're creating is really captured by the landlord, whoever owns that property. Um, that's that's the huge line item on their expenses and 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 it's that that captures a lot of value and we've seen right now how much um how much companies who have rapidly evolved uh, and adapted to embrace the digital experience have 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 thrived 
Um, and and uh, for some for some types of businesses, that's harder than others, right? Like it's harder for a restaurant um, than you know for for another type of business. But I think that that what is really going to change in the future is how we're all interacting uh, with the virtual space and the virtual world. And, you know, the, the relative amount that we're going to be using our physical space for, as you pointed out, experiences versus things. Mm-hmm. And so I, so then I wonder about, you know, if uh, you mentioned that you work in, di- in, uh, in digital health, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the rise of things that we used to traditionally think of as no, no, you can't, you can't do that digitally. You need to, you need to go, you need to see the the health practitioner, whether it be a doctor or a dentist or, you know, para health services or things like that. But, but at the same time, we've, you know, we have a huge rise in digital health and we have, I mean, you know, now my phone company, um, who I'm not going to give free promo to, although if they want to advertise with the show, please, you know, send, we'll, we'll, I'll gladly cut a pro a real promo for them. Um, but they're sending me an app where I can, you know, interact with I, what I think is an AI. And then it shoots me out to uh, a tele, uh, like a video conference with a, with a, a, do- a physician if I need it. And I'm wondering if that's kind of service model is going to um, take, go from just the, the health space and into all kinds of other um, businesses so that I'm accessing, I'm still getting the, the, the connection with a, with a person. Cause I think we all value that, but I wonder if I'm going to be able to do that from my couch in my hoodie. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And I, and I think that to that point, you know, especially in the digital health space, what's really interesting is that um, services that and, and interactions that were traditionally thought is only possible to do in person, um, people are finding out that that's, that's actually not the case. Um, and, and there's a lot of different types of services um, that not only um, can you do them virtually, uh, I mean, that, you know, you, you actually can do physiotherapy, you can do chiropractic virtually, you can have the, the, uh, the doctor's consultation virtually at a quality completely equivalent to, to what you'd have in person, say for a number of perhaps unique, unique cases. Um, but that also it's, it's how much it's benefiting um, people who have been otherwise marginalized or disenfranchised. Um, so, you know, to use an example in the digital health space, what's, what's really uh, an interesting um, area in that is remote home monitoring and uh, telemedicine because, you know, one of the things that it really supports is people who have mobility issues um, but need to manage their chronic disease or they live in remote areas. And suddenly, you know, you have this ability to access care in a way that you never could previously. Um, and it's not only equivalent care, but actually better because you're getting more frequent care and you're getting the ability to have your vitals monitored remotely because the technology has improved so vastly. So I think it's it's opened up um, the door to meaningfully expand these areas of innovation, which have existed, but perhaps have struggled with adoption because people have believed that it's it's not equivalent when in fact there is it is and there's so much opportunity. Um, for those types of technologies. 
Yeah, and I guess though it's what's really cool, and the reason I want to talk, uh, I'll pivot a little bit here into like the idea of the gig economy and how the digital disruption. I mean, we know that uh, you know that's those are all buzzwords, and you know, good for me. I now have a bumper sticker, but like, um, I, I wonder if there is the further disruption in the way that Uber has disrupted a lot of the first with the taxi and the transportation in um, industry, but really they their real growth has been in the in the the food delivery right like all these apps that are now like restaurants that couldn't would couldn't or wouldn't do delivery have now gone into that and i wonder if there is going to be the next sort of thing or maybe you want to take a guess at this what's the next sort of like digital disruptor to a, a pre-existing uh thing and i wonder if that that will also bring us further into that gig economy because i think that those the gig economy is is such an interesting thing now where we're all basically uh, taking side hustles or have the ability to get a side hustle and um, and scratch out small bits of money. But I wonder if that's where the future is or are we going to kind of snap back and go, no, no, we want to have stability around these other more traditional models. Hmm. Um, it's interesting you say that. I, I guess I'll sort of, take that question and maybe break it out into two. There was a lot there. There was a lot. I, I, I kind of words, I kind of threw some word salad at you there. No, that's okay. I mean, like, I think, I think there's sort of one broader question, which is, um, you know, in the way that technology has really paved the way for the gig economy, do we see that as being a lasting trend? And then I think the second question is really, you know, I think you, you were asking, you know, what is the next digital disruption yeah so um, yeah the first question is really about you know is this going to continue and the second one is where do you want me to put my money where should i invest what area oh oh i, I thought maybe you'd <laughs> tell me that uh, <laughs> um yeah i know i mean like the the idea of the gig i i i mean i guess my perspective in some of this is um you know we there's the there's the outcome there's sort of the consequence and then there's the underlying technology okay so so there's like you know there's this this gig economy that has really popped up because of um you know a lot of platforms that really act as they, they they've sort of optimized the idea of connecting people of creating these two-sided markets um and they've made that really fast and really efficient because they have um, great technology. Um, whether the gig economy itself lasts, I can't say. I mean, I think we've seen um, a lot of a lot of pushback on that. Um, you know, from from politically through society through through participants in the gig economy, just because um, you know the philosophy. I think at the outset was that this gig economy would be supplemental to income, but, um, you know, people have really um, approached it as, as a full-time job. And then I think at that point, when you have this critical mass who are earning the vast majority of their income from, from this, um, it, it becomes, it becomes tricky, right? Like it's no longer a gig. It's, it's, it's your, it's your source of employment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we've been seeing socially this, this pushback, um, you know, on that, um, and, and, and ensuring that there's, there's equity and equitable treatment of, of em employees. And, you know, what does that look like in this, in this new space? So 
I don't really know what that outcome is. I suspect that there will likely be pushback from a regulatory perspective, pushback from a community perspective, social perspective, union perspective on, on a lot of on a lot of that. Um, and whether the model, the gig model becomes economically sustainable um, is, is anyone's guess, right? In terms of the second question, which is what's the next digital disruptor and where should, where should I invest my money? Um, I wish I had a good answer to that because uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, as you said, prognosticating a lot of times. I mean, I can more speak to what I think is, is going to underlie the next wave of transformation. Well, and I think that's that's a that's a great place to sort of uh, park uh, to sort of go there. Let's let's go there, and we'll sort of park it there because you're right. I don't think anyone, if you know, five, six, seven years ago, uh, if you had asked someone about where the next disruptor was, they no one was going to say it was going to be in digital health necessarily or in uh, in food delivery. You know, so maybe maybe the question was a little too specific. But what? Yeah, what do you think is the underlying piece? Yeah, because I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I mean, I think that there's there's points in time where you have truly transformational technology, right? Like we couldn't say six or seven years ago that um, you know there would be this demand for digital health or food delivery. These are all different use cases that utilize um, like some specific transformational elements, right? Like it utilizes a combination of um, uh, the internet and web and cloud-based technology and uh, utilizes um, advancements in, in telecommunication and the power of that. So like these are, these are like underlying transform mm -hmm. transformational technologies that come together and suddenly make the environment right for things like, um, you know, a, a, a great digital health experience or the ability to order food at the drop of a hat. Um, and so, you know, when we're looking at, you know, what are the, what are the core transformational elements going forward? Um, there's probably like a few big ones and many of which I can't speak to in much technical detail, but um because <laughs> i'm no, not a i'm we'll not get, a technician we, but yeah we can get know, engineers to talk about that stuff exactly Just, yeah but if we're looking at so you know how and and i think this this is an over overused term but sort of we look at machine learning and ai which are actually two very different things um yeah. you we do machine learning now you train a machine and machine learning happens as you speak and we're getting better and better at um, you know, training those machines to start spotting patterns in a way that we never could. Um, but then there's sort of the artificial intelligence, which I think, you know, still is a, a you know, it's, it's an often thrown around buzzword. Um, yes. I think there's probably a, only a couple of labs in the world that are truly <laughs> creating what we would think of as artificial intelligence. But, you know, that, that is going to, the advancements in that is, is going to transform the way that we um, interact with the world. Yeah, um, I did, I'm just hoping for more, um, you know, Johnny Five from Short Circuit and a little less, um, you know, T1000 is what I'm hoping yeah. for. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and I think that the other, the other like core technology that is going to be incredibly interesting is, um, is blockchain. 
Uh, and I think that that gets a bit of a bad rap because blockchain is the technology that underlies Bitcoin. And we all know that's had its own dramas and and ups and downs. But it's, it's less about it's, it's less about Bitcoin itself than about having the blockchain, which is essentially a, a distributed ledger, which is now being used by, you know, that technology is being used by a bunch of companies to, um, you know, in, in financial services and in health to have this sort of trusted distributed ledger that has, um, that has, a, a, that can track a chain of events um, in a really meaningful way and can, can address things like fraud and can address things like supply chain. So, I mean, that's like the underlying technology. And, and I think like the third one, which is really interesting, but we're, we're really, really far off and it's somewhat related to, um, I, I would say like machine learning is, uh, is, is, uh, quantum technology. And, and that is, that's a type of technology that, uh, uh, you know, I I am not equipped um, <laughs> enough to explain. Well, we can reach out that, to to NASA. We can to reach NASA. out to the yeah to NASA. But I think what what that really is it's um it's it's really an a technology that's used for for solving optimization solutions in a in a really interesting and fast way. Like there's there's specific use cases that if someone can crack how to do that type of calculation using quantum technology in, you know, the, the really key thing is getting it, getting it done cheaply and quickly. I mean, it's going to blow everyone out of the water. Yeah. And I wonder if that's going to be where, you know, and we'll, we'll kind of leave it here, but I wonder if the, this is where we kind of get into the idea of predictive analytics and the idea of, of informing uh, and using that data, that data to inform, future patterns. So, so you almost, so you're almost in predictive modes so you can see problems before they, they fully arise. I mean, I know I, we're getting a little far, far afield and, and into some science fiction stuff if we really sort of play that out, but I, the idea of predictive analytics and that whole, that whole study being applied, like right now it's been, it's done, it's still done with computing, but I mean, if you can apply quantum computing and quantum uh, technology to that, the speed at which the decisions can be made and the data can be analyzed would almost be revolutionary in and of itself because then you have the idea to if not predict the future at least be able to predict multiple outcomes and prepare in in advance well exactly exactly and i and i think what you know i think these are these are sort of the the underlying technologies because all of the you know when we think about the businesses today they are made they are they are in some ways use cases um made possible with the convergence of multiple transformational technologies. And, and to your point, I think that there's the interesting piece of, you know, what, what are the use cases we can solve with this? But to me, it's also interesting, like, what is going to be the societal impact of this? Um, you know, and I think, you know, there might be like that saying that you know, change happens really, really slowly and then all at once. And I think that's what it's going to look like for for all of these technologies, probably in the not too distant future. Yeah, and, that's, and, and, that's <laughs> probably right. That's probably right. Well, in the you know that's the future. I want to turn now and start talk about the past, and I want to talk about the, our topic for the list. Are you good to to sort of leave the the prognosticating to one side and jump into the list? Oh, uh, absolutely. 
So the reason I make the comparison from the future to the past is we're going to talk about our top five uh, sitcom characters. Um, and the reason they're all in the past is they don't really make sitcoms and they certainly don't make really great sitcoms the way they used to. And I know now I sound like that old man sitting in a rocking chair, but really I, when I was going through this and maybe you'll talk about this too, when I was going through this, I don't think, I think I have one. Yeah. I'm looking at my list. I have one from the, uh, from a show that's fr- from the two thousands. Everything else is, is from the night, uh, from before the year 2000. Really? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't find, I, again, it's a, this is a very, you know, scratch list. If I put it together, I'd probably, you know, could probably think of characters from the 2000s, but I, yeah, I didn't have a ton. I had, uh, I had different ones. What about you? How was your, what was your experience with it? I, I had almost the opposite, uh, almost the opposite. I, I mean, I could certainly have a deep appreciation for pre 2000s sitcoms, but um, some of my favorite characters are actually more recent. That's okay. That's great. This will be an interesting comparison. Now, just one last thing before we jump in. I did this almost exclusively from a feeling point of view or from a uh, an, an clearly heavily nostalgic point of view. It's like how I got to these are the characters, not necessarily that they're the best characters on the show, but the, how they were the characters that I really liked the most from and probably from a time when I was connecting to to shows. Interesting. Okay, I was just about to ask you what criteria you use. <laughs> it, it was it was it was almost all gut. Um, yeah, let's jump in. What's your number five? Okay, now I'm I'm just gonna say I cheated a little bit because in some ways, uh, for two of my responses, I combined characters. So one is a couple, and okay. one is an ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You really did break these rules, but that's fine. We didn't set any rules before. Go for it. What's number five? Okay. So number five um, is actually one of my favorites, largely and sadly, because I do tend to identify with this person a little bit too much and possibly even her relationship. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with a charming uh, sitcom called Happy Endings. I do. I love that show. Yes. So um, I've chosen the couple Jane Kirkovich and Brad Williams. Yes. Um, not, not, a li- not just a little bit, you know, because there's some self-identification there. But um, to me, they are absolutely charming, and and just I like I adore watching them, and I think it's they are wonderfully acted um, mm-hmm. by the two actors yeah. portraying them. Yeah. Um, it, it's great comedic work, and I just I I adore the those characters. I yeah I I'm with you. I uh, that's a really great show. Uh, it's too bad it didn't last longer because I I they were really fun. Because uh, again that show on just a pull out from the, that I you could almost go pretty well with any one of those characters was really really fun. Um, I still to this day quote and I can't remember the character's name but I still remember the dark haired one who always said amazing. I still oh, yeah. I, yeah love that show. <laughs> so yeah uh, and that's and that actress is Eliza Coop. Yeah, and Damon Wayans Jr., who's and Damon hilarious. Jr. hilarious. Yeah. Okay, so I went totally nostalgic on my number five pick. I went with uh, Arnold Jackson from Different Strokes. That was Gary Coleman's character on Different Strokes. Oh, do you know I'm ashamed to say I've never seen Different Strokes. Oh my gosh. Okay, so first of all, you need to go to ctv.ca. It's completely free. Okay. You can watch all the episodes of Different Strokes. Was it a great show? No. Was it he a great actor? Absolutely not. 
but this show was the show that I would come home to and watch this show and to watch a guy like Gary Coleman. And he, of course he has that great catchphrase. Right? What'd you talk about Willis? And he pout, does the pout. I mean, that was, we quoted that all the time running around as kids. We were just like, what you talking about Willis? And of course no one really watched the show at the time because it was in rerun. So most of the adults were like, who's Willis? His name is Daniel. Like what, why are you calling him Willis? It just, Fond memories, but I really loved, I really loved Gary Coleman. He tried to act, he tried to have his serious moments, but again, he's, he's playing like a, now the, the politics of the show do not work, you know, a, a white, wealthy white man deciding to adopt his maid's children. Yeah, I don't think that would play in 2020, but, you know, it was the 70s. It's what we did in, in the 70s. <laughs> also, I mean, like, there's always that affection for the show that you, saw the second you got home from school there was always the one not gonna lie mine weirdly was um star trek the old star treks oh yeah Um, that was on at like four o'clock on on space channel like it was it was my thing yeah it was great great show (laughs) yeah and we'll have to have you back when we do you know the nostalgic the shows from, from your youth we'll do that in the episode one time okay what's your number four um, so my my number four is from a show that I I still think stands up over time, which is Seinfeld, um, and I just think that Julia Louis Dreyfus as Elaine Bennis is a work of comedic genius. Oh, um, that's fantastic! And and you know she's obviously super talented. Veep was amazing. She's just overall an amazing comedic actress, but well, I'm going to jump in right now. I'm going to jump in and tell you, cause I have Selena Meyer is my number four choice. So we both, we're on the same wavelength. Okay, great. We're at, we're definitely on the same wavelength. (laughs) So go on, go on. You were saying, you were saying, uh, Julia Dreyfus comedic. I mean, Elaine is such a great character, right? Like she's so, she's so great. Oh, but, but same, like I just like Selena Meyer. Amazing. Just outstanding work as a comedic actress just stunning and uh yeah so i i would argue that she is probably on the mount rushmore of of comedic actresses that's ever that have ever been like obviously you know i before my time before your time lucille ball and you know and carol burnett uh was up there i think um although she's more of a sketch comedy but you know uh, i put her up there like just some of the best funniest you know like i i don't think i've seen a show with julia louis dreyfus where uh, it was she wasn't funny like the the new adventures of old christine um you know she did some guest spots on other shows I, she's just she's just comedy gold oh 100 could not agree more i'm so good i'm glad we're on the same page with our number fours yeah uh, well sure yeah well okay let's jump to the number three then Okay, so number three for me is Captain Raymond Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Okay, Um, okay. Not sure if you've seen that show in particular. Uh, Seen every episode. Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. (laughs) Um, I I just think that he, um, like, he's a, to me, he's like a classically trained actor, and in that role, he's phenomenal. He's got range. He's got, you know, he, like, I think he's got the funniest lines in the entire show. And he delivers them just with, like, absolute perfection. And I adore him. 
Oh yeah, no, Andre Brower is is great. And the best thing about Andre Brower is I remember when I was in high school, he was on a show, a cop show called Homicide, which was set in Baltimore. And he played this most, the most intense detective. And so he had this, there was a recurring thing that happened on, you know, it's cop shows. They have to do the interview, grill the suspect. And um, it was known as the box on that show. And he was the scariest guy in the box to the point that the other characters were like, well, don't let that guy in the box with him because he'll, he'll destroy that guy. And to see him then play that same intensity, but just tweak it just a little bit, he's hilarious. He's hilarious. I love Captain Holt. He's the best. <laughs> so uh, I went Seinfeld, uh, on the, the show Seinfeld for my third character, and that uh, for my number three, which is George Costanza. And oh, re- yeah. And the reason I love George is because every se- I'm a big fan of cringe comedy. You know, the ones where like the meet the Fockers and the and that kind of thing where you're just like, just it's a slow moving. No, no, don't just don't just don't do it. And there is no better to me cringe comedy character than George Cassandra, because every single time, you know, he's not you just don't do it. Just don't do it. And oh, yeah. then he does it. And then he does it. And he does it. Yep. And, it and it's such a spectacular fail. Um <laughs> I still I still laugh just thinking about the episode where um he has sex with the maid at work or the cleaning oh, lady at work and he said if, if I had known that that was frowned upon uh, just it's still to me the one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life oh yeah and and like the physical comedy that was brought by Jason Alexander just oh uh, un, unmatched unmatched yeah. I think the, the the highlight there, the easy one, I mean, to me, the easy and the easily celebrated ones are, you know, Kramer's entrances because he was so big and flamboyant and he was the oddball so he could do anything. And the lane was obviously really great because, you know, it's Julie Louis-Dreyfus, who I don't think was given a lot of great material, but was always able to crank it up and make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, like I said, I just the 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 never-ending parade of failure of george costanza is just just amazing oh it's spectacular (laughs) okay so good that's why he struggled and got typecast (laughs) oh yeah well yeah and that's uh, yeah that's why yeah yeah right okay what's your number two so my number two is my uh i cheated cast ensemble but i actually have evidence as to why i think it's an excellent cast ensemble and individually, um, like that's it's, it needs to be together. So, one of my favorite shows of all time, uh, Arrested Development. Um, oh, okay. At least the first three seasons. Yep. Sure. And I mean, each of the characters individually are you know completely loathsome, but collectively as a group, as a cast, um, it's one of the best ensembles. For comedy that I have seen. Yeah, um, I agree. That that's a great, <laughs> great pick. And individually, it's funny because in the I, I wasn't as big a fan of the later seasons where they followed each of the characters individually. And it, you know, it didn't hit the same way because they needed to, it, the beauty was in the way that they interacted with each other. So that's my argument for why I, I cheated on this one. No, I think, I think that's fair because I don't think one character, like uh, one character on their own from that show. You're right. I don't think it really, 
you know, other than maybe Will Arnett's character, um, Job, I, you know, I think other than because he, he was the stand up for me anyway. But for the most part, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think the that was definitely a, a sum was greater than its parts type of view. and the parts are great, but the sum was even greater than the parts that they had. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, yeah. So I'm going to go number my number two is going to go way off the map. And I, <laughs> I look at it and I laugh because I'm like, well, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hide my love for this one. It's my number two character is Alf. Okay. The puppet, the alien the puppet. puppet, the alien puppet. Yes, I mean, I mean, it's it's Alf. What it's I, what I, yeah, what I loved about that character though was, and and bear with me here, that show is a traditional sitcom family sitcom that was done right it you know the mom the dad the, the two kids the thing and all the hijinks that we know oh something's gonna go on at the party or something but then you throw an elf who's kind of like the deadpool for network television of the whole situation because he is because he's an alien and because he's a puppet and because it's so obvious that he is you know not of the same physical material he is able to comment and he does facial reckon. He does weird faces and he looks to the camera and he does these weird thing, uh, affectations. And he, he's literally doing Deadpool's bit 25, 30 years before Deadpool is, is on the scene in, in, the, in a mass cultural way. And, that, and, and I love that because I love how you've drawn now a straight line from Alf to Deadpool. And, um, and now you're not going to unsee that because you're going to you're going to go back and you're going to see Deadpool. And, <laughs> oh my gosh! If Alf was allowed to curse, he might he might be this. Um, and I always remember this bit um, from from one of the episodes where they throw they are throwing a party. They're having like a a big uh, costume party at their house. Why you have a costume party at your house doesn't matter. They're having a costume party at their house, and Alf just really wants to be seen. He's just tired of hiding in the closet all the time and having to go upstairs and hide away. So he goes and he takes a, a zipper out of um, Willie, the dad's um, trench coat, and just sticks it to himself. So now it's just like, oh, he's just you know, he's there and he's he's in a costume because he's got a zipper on him, and that's the whole the whole conceit of it. Alf kills at the party, and he gets three phone numbers from like the like the like. Uh, the ladies from from uh, from the neighborhood, including like the divorcee, you know, the most cliched divorcee, and it's just so funny because not only is it you know like it's funny because you see a puppet and haha, but as a kid, but as an adult, when I and I rewatched Elf by the way, um, the bit is even funnier because it's such a meta comment on the cliches of the sitcom. Like, of course <laughs> this would happen. Of course this is going on. Uh, it's yeah, Elf is. I love Elf. The puppet. Um, amazing choice. Amazing choice. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's it's way out there, but I, I like. Okay, your number one. My number one uh, would have to be Leslie Nope from Parks and Re- Recreation. Okay. Um, yes. Um, and I just I I love her because, like, she just. I mean, it's obviously idealist scenario but i love the way she is represented in that show i adore it you know she's uh, like she is just unapologetically ambitious strong kind is completely herself uh she pushes too hard she loves too much she you know works too hard 
And, and, you know, I have a feeling that that particular show would, would pass the Bechdel test numerous times. Mm. Um, and I just, I, I think that the way that she embodies just that character and, and just the strength of that character, I love, and I could watch that show a million times and there's, you know, so many great characters on that show, oh, but, absolutely. Uh, but, but, but I, I love, I just love her character. Solid pick, solid pick. And it's interesting that we're going to parallel because you said it passed, it would pass the Bechdel test, you know, and for those people who aren't familiar, the Bechdel test, of course, is when, you know, two female, it's a very low bar that a lot of other programs, uh, unfortunately, uh, pass, which is that it's two female characters have a conversation with each other and it does not involve anything to do with a male character. And uh, does I sum that up right? Is that a good sort of short, quick? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So it's funny you say that because my number one character was also on a show that would break the Bechdel test. And so my favorite character, number one, is Rose, played by Betty White in The Golden Girls. Oh, you know what? I was thinking as we were going through this, that how could I have missed The Golden Girls? But that please is, go on. The Golden Girls, um, for those people who know me, and now for those people who don't, The Golden Girls is one of my favorite all-time shows to the point where I, who buys DVDs anymore? I was actually, I have it sitting in my Amazon cart. I'm just waiting because I don't want to have to wait, you know, six weeks for it to arrive because it's not considered essential. I'm just waiting for the Amazon wait time to go down. I actually want to buy all seven seasons of the Golden Girls on DVD. I love this show. I love the four sassy older ladies. I love the idea that there's, you know, uh, a group of friends that can get together like that. And to me, Rose was the, was given you know that character is the dumbest character in of the group right she's kind of the simpleton and that's a that's a sitcom trope it's always you got to have someone because that's where we can make a cheap joke but the way betty white plays her is with such dignity and and sweetness and sincerity and i mean now betty white has just become you know the world's grandma but she's she's so funny on this and uh and so quick with the with the one-liners. I mean, she's, she's just phenomenal. I love uh, Betty White is, is a national, is an international treasure. And I think this was her, even better than the stuff she did in the, in the earlier sitcoms. I think Rose on the golden girls is the best. Uh, Couldn't agree with you more. And, and all of those characters now, now I'm rethinking my ensemble cast choice because um, you know, I, I totally agree with you. And it was just, uh, I, I just agree with you in the term in the way that she played with her her with dignity and just like a like a sensitivity um, despite the fact that that's one show where the zingers were flying but uh, and it was also one show where I would watch after school inappropriately at like seven years old so <laughs> <laughs> yeah you well you probably laughed because uh, oh that was funny because the 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 audience is cueing me but if you go back and watch it now it's it is it is pretty good sitcom stuff uh you know situational humor and the idea that they would cast a show like that i mean you can draw the obvious parallel now is to the grace and frankie and having two old ladies in their more advanced years together and you know be pals but you don't get that kind of show and you certainly never got that kind of show in the 80s and you know uh to the idea of taking four senior citizens and say they were going to anchor our show around the idea that there's four older ladies, you know, down in Florida, that, that would, you know, you'd get laughed out of the room now, but if you, if you hadn't heard about it, but if we talk about the golden girls, you know, everyone has this affection for them. 
and and with good reason and with good reason although although i will say when you're watching it at seven and trying to chat with your friends at school about it it is not relatable no not relatable no No. it's not not big with the uh with the playground set it's not 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 great with the playground set no uh jen this is a lot of fun thank you for letting me share my love of both alf and rose from the golden girls no thank you for inviting me and it was uh, i very much enjoyed your top five selection so (laughs) thank you uh, yeah this has been fun so jen we'll talk again soon hopefully and be safe take care of yourself and uh yeah like i said i hope to see you in person soon oh you too take care dave okay It's time for the dad joke of the week. Okay, here's this week's dad joke. Why was the scarecrow promoted? Because he was outstanding in his field. All right, now this time for this week's corn stream recommendation. This week, I'm recommending the TV show Billions. You can find it uh, anywhere. It is definitely on Crave. Uh, We're in season five right now. This is what I would like to call modern Shakespeare. Uh, It's elevated language. It is ruthless. Uh, There's twists and turns that you don't see coming. It's a great show. Um, For those of you who don't know, the show focuses on the power fight between a billionaire hedge fund manager, played by Damian Lewis, and an ambitious prosecutor with deep ties to old money in his family, played by Paul Giamatti, who is exceptional. Uh, The show is a visual treat. It's shot like the great films um, that are in shot in New York. Beautiful lighting, settings. Uh, They're always eating amazing food in great restaurants. And the camera work is spectacular. Uh, I mentioned the cast before. The cast is fantastic, but the standout to me is the writing, the twists and turns that I mentioned, the dialogue, which is just cutting and fun and kind of makes allusions to other uh, great pop culture pieces. I can't say this enough. I love this show. You can catch up on seasons one to four on Crave, and season five just started uh, two episodes in. Great show. Billions. Check it out. Well, that's our show this week. My thanks go to Jen Bates for joining me and chatting about the future technology that will help grow our businesses and also for sharing her love of the cast of Arrested Development and for not mocking my love of ALF. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. Email comments, suggestions to dltopod at gmail.com. And of course, share, share, share. We want to grow this show and we'd love for you to help us out to hear the enhanced edition please listen to us on the anchor app search dlto pod or go to anchor.fm slash dlto thanks for listening wash your hands bye for now